Jesus called Capernaum his own city. You know, he performed more of his recorded miracles here than in any other town in the Bible. But Capernaum had a crisis. What was the problem? Why did Jesus ultimately condemn Capernaum? Well, we're about to leave our studios and go to the streets of ancient Capernaum. Plus, Charlie Dyer helps us understand Sukkot and the Second Coming, all that and more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome. I'm John Geiger, hoping your day's going pretty well. And let me also say hi to our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. How's your day going, Charlie? John, it's going great, even better now that I'm with you. Well, here we are in the fall season, and in the middle of the high holy days, the biblical fall feasts are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plans for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. Now, to sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. And now we'll take you to a look at current events, all based in the Middle East from this past week. Story number one, during the recent UN General Assembly meetings, one of the main topics of discussion was a possible peace treaty between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Charlie, why is there such optimism over this uh, possible treaty? When could it take place and what obstacles still remain? Well, part of the reason for the optimism is the apparent willingness of the Saudis to negotiate a deal. The Saudi crown prince said his country and Israel are moving closer to normalization every day. Prime Minister Netanyahu said a normalization deal was likely, but that the window might only be open for the next few months. The optimism is coming from a confluence of events and interests. Israel wants a deal because they believe it'll break the logjam with other Arab countries. Six or seven other Muslim nations from Africa and Asia would likely follow Saudi Arabia in making peace with Israel should the deal go through. The Saudis want the U.S. to enter into a defense pact with them to protect them from Iran. They also want access to U.S. nuclear technology, and they want to purchase advanced military hardware. And the price to obtain all that, apparently, is a peace treaty. In addition, they would like access to Israel's high-tech industry. President Biden wants a deal to help stem the influence of Russia and China in the Middle East and to provide him with a foreign policy victory going into next year's national election. Now, all this does suggest a push for peace sometime in early 2024, but serious obstacles still remain. The religiously conservative in Saudi Arabia struggle over accepting a Jewish state in land conquered for Allah. Those on the far left in Israel are opposed to anything that would raise Netanyahu's standing like this treaty would. And those on the far right are concerned over concessions to the Palestinians that will likely need to be made as well for such a deal. And even in the U.S., there are those on the far left who oppose any concessions to the Saudis, as well as those on the religious right who are concerned that a deal could ultimately harm Israel's security. And finally, the Palestinians are fearful. A deal could potentially marginalize their call to establish a state of their own. Now, all that to say, there's a lot that still needs to happen and a lot that could go wrong in the next few months in this push for a deal. 
Well, let me follow up on the concern of the Palestinians. Uh, The Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, also spoke at the U.N. and said there would never be Middle East peace without Palestine. What are the real issues, though, standing in the way of Israel and the Palestinians reaching an agreement? You know, if I have to boil it all down, I think the real issue is basically how each side is going to perceive reality. Uh, Following Netanyahu's speech, one of Abbas's advisors called the message arrogant and racist. He referred to Netanyahu as the prime minister of the occupation government. And then when Abbas spoke, he said there will never be Middle East peace without the recognition of Palestinian statehood along pre-1967 lines. He claimed Israel was feverishly digging tunnels on and around the Al-Aqsa Mosque that would cause its collapse. He called for the criminalization of the denial of the Nakba, the catastrophe day as they call it, which mourns the creation of the state of Israel. Israel's ambassador to the UN then issued a rebuke following Abbas's speech saying, he's no partner for peace, he's totally detached from reality, and he's irrelevant. Uh, With such rhetoric, it's hard to imagine how the two sides can come to any agreement. According to press reports, Abbas is supposedly ready to back away from some demands and would agree to an interim understanding, being satisfied with just a pledge to move toward a Palestinian state. But that only kicks the can down the road, and eventually the key issues would still need to be addressed. Is Abbas willing to accept the reality of a Jewish state of Israel whose boundaries extend beyond the ceasefire lines that were in effect back in 1967? And would Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition partners be willing to make concessions, including the eventual recognition of a demilitarized Palestinian state? And finally, how would Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah respond if some sort of peace treaty were to be reached? Uh, Those are a lot of questions, but we have few answers right now. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. Glad you're along for this opening segment where we walk you through the top stories from the Middle East. As you just said, another obstacle to peace would seem to be Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. What are they saying about potential peace between Israel and the other Arab states? And how serious is the threat that they might pose to any agreement? Well, I'll start with Iran. They won't accept any state of Israel. They want Israel to be disappearing as a nation. And so they are definitely going to be a major problem. Hamas is already a significant threat to Abbas and his Fatah party uh, there in the West Bank. You know, they defeated Fatah in the 2006 Gaza elections and then pushed Fatah out of Gaza the following year. They're working to do the same thing in the West Bank, which is one reason Abbas has consistently postponed elections. Hamas has also resumed rioting along the Gaza border with Israel, and they're sending incendiary balloons across the border. Uh, They recently boasted that the next war with Israel will leave Israel without utilities, suggesting they plan with their rockets to target power stations, water desalination plants, and airports. Hamas also sent representatives to Lebanon to meet with Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad members to discuss creating a united terror front against Israel. Now, they're being supported in all of this and encouraged in it by Iran, which continues to supply weapons and logistical support. These are all serious threats. They're all a major reason Israel is continuing to update and advance its own defensive capabilities. By next year, Israel has said it will have its laser defense system partially up and running. And within two years, they hope to have complete protection against missiles and shells and rockets. That system will protect both the northern and southern borders of the country against Hezbollah and Hamas. And their goal is not only to stop their rocket attacks, but also to stop any threats from Iran. We've said it before, Israel lives in a bad neighborhood, and that's why they're so serious about defense. 
A recent article announced the publication of a papyrus fragment containing early sayings of Jesus. What are the claims being made, and how significant is this fragment that was discovered? Yeah, like many news stories, the reports didn't get all the facts right. The fragment, this new discovery they said, was actually part of the Oxyrhynchus collection of about a half million papyrus fragments discovered in an ancient town about 100 miles south of Cairo. Now, those fragments were uncovered in the late 19th century. There were so many of them, they're still being studied and published. And this particular fragment, which actually was several fragments painstakingly pieced together, uh, that's what was just published. The pieces were apparently sold to Hobby Lobby's David Green for the Museum of the Bible. Uh, When they realized the fragments had been stolen, uh, they returned them to Egypt's Exploration Society. But before they were returned, they had been studied by several scholars, including a former classmate of mine who specializes in ancient texts. They dated the manuscript fragments to the late 2nd century. But here are the details that weren't found in all the articles. First, this isn't a New Testament papyrus. That is, it's not a copy of a portion of the Bible. Rather, it was apparently a part of a document summarizing sayings of Jesus from a number of different sources, including, it had parts of Matthew and Luke, and it also had the Gospel of Thomas, which is an apocryphal work. And that leads to the second point. It's from an area and a time when there was interest in discovering and producing other sayings about Jesus beyond what's in the Bible. In short, this fragment does demonstrate that books like Matthew and Luke were known within a century after they were written. But it also shows that the era of Gnosticism, which started in the second century in Egypt, was influencing the church there in Egypt. The Gospel of Thomas was a Gnostic work. As my friend wrote, uh, he said, this syncretistic papyrus fragment will spawn a great deal of speculation, but it doesn't really add anything to what we already know about the New Testament. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. If it's been a while since you've been to our website, maybe you've never been there. Today's a great day to check it out. It's at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. At the website, you will be able to listen to past programs, learn what's coming up, Uh, discover other great links to other ministries at Moody Bible Institute, and a link there where you can email us. Love to hear how this program is impacting you, your life, your worldview, your understanding of the Scriptures, and more. Again, the website is thelandandthebook.org. Charlie, don't you love the city of Capernaum? Oh, I love the city, John. It's a place where you can walk through and say, Jesus made this his base of operation in Galilee. And uh, all the things we think about with Jesus, the miracles, the parables, uh, they connect with that town. And we're going to dig deep into the story of Capernaum as you and I travel there via a recorded conversation we had a few months back right there on the streets of Capernaum. You hear the sounds and more in this conversation. That's coming up here on The Land and the Book. Hey, do us a favor. Don't just listen to the program. Share us with a friend as well, won't you? Stay tuned for more on The Land and the Book. It's a biblical town that's mentioned in all four Gospels. It was here that Jesus called himself the bread of life. Some say that in the streets of this place, Jesus performed more miracles in the Bible than any other city. 
Welcome back to The Land and the Book. As you listen to the background sounds, you know we've left our typical studio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, we are at a site that can only be described as remarkable. Exactly where are we? Uh, John, we are at Capernaum. And indeed, it is a remarkable site. I mean, this is where Jesus spent his time and did his miracles. It's, it's incredible. Well, why might Jesus have chosen this place as his adopted hometown? So many other beautiful spots in Israel. Well, I think Capernaum was located strategically, uh, which is why Jesus chose it. You know, after the death of Herod the Great, his empire got divided up. So Herod Antipas controlled Galilee, and that's the area where we're in right now. And just on the other side of the Jordan River, though, was the area assigned to Herod Philip, who controlled the east side. Uh, so uh, Jesus uh, basically operated in an area between two countries, and Capernaum was the spot where anybody traveling down the uh, international highway had to cross over. Uh, that's why there's Roman centurions here. That's why there's a tax office here. Uh, it's a central location, and uh, Jesus chose that central location as his base of ministry. A little bit of a side road here. You mentioned uh, two of Herod's sons uh, taking over territory that was all exclusively his as Herod the Great. Would there have been some competition, some bitterness? Hey, you got a, a more impressive chunk than I did. Absolutely. Uh, each one tried to outdo the other in terms of what he built, what he controlled. And Herod Antipas was the larger of the two, ended up with the bigger share. Uh, Herod Philip, uh, not so much. In fact, he lost his wife to Herod Antipas. I mean, they, these brothers were in rivalry. Yeah. And that's, of course, where John the Baptist comes into play. Well, here in Capernaum, Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. These guys were fishermen by trade. And I'm wondering, as I'm sure many listeners are, did these four guys just leave their fishing boats on the shore at the very moment Jesus called them, start walking with Christ? Or might there have been a brief slice of time to hand over the business to somebody else? Well, you know, I'll stick with Matthew 4 in terms of uh, how the uh, sequence of events was. As Jesus called the two sets of brothers in verses 20 and 22, it says, immediately for both of them, they left the nets, or in the other case, the boats, and followed him. And the word for immediately there actually means immediately or at once or, or suddenly. So hmm. uh, there might have been others in the family business who were there, but it looks like these guys just left without hesitation and left the business to the rest of the family. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. John Geiger here with segment two. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, leading us on a tour of Israel. Today's spot for this conversation is Capernaum. Is the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, which is not too far away, farther away today than it was in Jesus' day. In other words, would this have been closer to the water? No, this is pretty accurate today. In fact, we know that because of the, uh, the ruins that are around the lake. If the water were much higher, many of the places that we know of that existed in the first century would have been underwater. Hmm. If it were much lower, then, yeah, you'd have docks and uh, short lines that would be separated from the shore, and they would have had to build out to them. So by what we know from the docks the, and the other details here, uh, plus or minus you know, a few feet, we're at the, the uh, lake. In fact, the lake today is within four feet of being totally full hmm. and uh, very likely varied uh, somewhere in the time of Jesus, but uh, about this height. Capernaum is where Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion. Now, to my untrained eye, it seems like even at the height of its influence, Capernaum wasn't all that influential a town, certainly not close to Jerusalem or any other city of that uh, mention. So what does it say about Rome that they felt they needed a presence here? Uh, the Romans had, had this massive empire, and they controlled it through strategic strength and, uh, and presence. They needed to have uh, a presence here because they knew that not only the Jewish people, but all the empires that they controlled, if they thought they could get away, they would. Uh, so Romans would put the tax office, they need the money, and that's what they wanted primarily from here. They put the soldiers here because they wanted to keep the peace. 
so that a larger army didn't have to come. And uh, much like in, uh, in our country today, uh, you put a police presence somewhere, hopefully to hold down crime. That's what they were doing. Okay. Well, I've read that uh, more miracles recorded in Scripture were performed here in Capernaum than in any other town mentioned in the Bible. If that's true, is there a second place town where a lot of, of miracles were also performed? You know, it's interesting. The uh, Gospels say that Jesus performed most of his miracles in Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. And yet when you look details in the Gospels, we have one miracle in Bethsaida, in Bethsaida, and it, Jesus took the man outside the city before he performed it, <laughs> as the man who was blind, and he, healed, he had the feeding of the 5,000 near Bethsaida, but not in it. Chorazin, we don't know of any miracles that were done there. And yet those are the three the Bible says where Jesus performed most. If we have to actually go with the written account, Jerusalem ends up coming in uh, because we know of at least two miracles that took place there. One of the most famous miracles that Jesus performed here in Capernaum is a story that leaves some of us scratching our heads. It's the moment when four friends lowered their paralyzed friend through a roof opening so Jesus could heal him. Obviously, that crowd must have been large and compressed for these men to have taken such drastic measures as to remove a part of the roof. But why couldn't they have just sort of passed the word along, Charlie? You know, step aside, stretcher coming through. Or was this really as much about the four friends' faith as it was the paralytic himself? I suspect they did try to push their way through, but everybody else was there to see Jesus, many to be healed by Jesus. Uh, They weren't about to step aside and let somebody else take their place. Uh, Now, the miracle itself, though, I think it is about the faith of the four men as much as it is the paralytic. And I say that because in Mark 2, it says, Jesus seeing their faith, uh, then says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So he's actually not looking just at the paralytic. He's looking at the men who brought him, and it was their faith that carried them through and come up with a plan to get this friend of theirs in front of Jesus. You know, we look at that miracle, at least I do, and we see that snapshot moment where he's being lowered through the roof. But what about the conversation they had to have? Maybe they had to sell this paralytic on the idea. They had to create a stretcher. They had to drag him whatever distance it was. Then they had to hoist him up. There was a whole lot going on before he ever got to Jesus. Yeah, that was. And if you ever think about being afraid of heights, imagine that, that stairway going up to the roof. It wasn't some gigantic ba- you know, uh, stairway that was wide. I mean, they're, they're bouncing and, and jiggling him. Uh, if they made a mistake, he's the one who ends up over the edge. Yeah. So uh, trust us. I'll, we'll, we'll get you there. Just keep trusting. Uh, yeah. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. We've left our studios. You can hear from the sounds in the background. We're outside. We're in Capernaum, one of the three cities that in Matthew 11, Jesus eventually condemned. We'll get to that in a moment. But why might Jesus have chosen to do so many miracles in this one town? Why not kind of spread the wealth a little, share the amazing demonstration of his power with many, many other communities? Well, you know, I can see at least two possible answers. You know, first, uh, in terms of the area, this is a strategic area, and probably more strategic than some other cities around. It's on the main transportation route. Uh, it's uh, going to be able to get anything he does here spread out to all the other areas, and Jesus was strategic. Uh, Mark uh, says this was his hometown. But uh, secondly, though, I think uh, there's uh, another reason, and it has to do with God's prophetic word. In Isaiah 9, God said he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but in the latter days he was going to make it glorious. Well, Zebulun's where Nazareth was. And Naphtali is where Capernaum is located. So 700 years before, God says, that's the area where I'm going to show my glory through my son. 
So you and I walk these streets today. Charlie, you've led our tour group, and there are many other groups here, as you can hear in the background, probably. Do you think that biblical residents of Capernaum would be able to walk around and recognize the town's ruins today? Uh, it depends on the time, because if they were at the time of Jesus, I think they would be stunned uh, by seeing all this white limestone that's around. The synagogue that's here was built several hundred years after the time of Jesus. You know, they might be able to go over and look at the base and say, well, that looks like the base of our synagogue, but everything's so different. They could have recognized the ruins of the houses and some of the, the building complex areas, but otherwise it's, it covers a span of about 500 years. So in many cases, I think they would be stunned by what they see today. You mentioned the synagogue, and it is very well preserved. Describe its size and the significance of that darker foundation layer. Well, you know, it's about 100 years or so ago, many of those stones that we now see weren't on top of one another. They were, like the earthquakes had, had scattered them. If we'd come here 150 years ago, we'd have just seen piles of rubble. But uh, those looking for the time of Jesus, well, we need to look at that basalt base because that is the synagogue from his time. Uh, and it's from the first century. That marks the, the footprint of the size of the synagogue. Now, I'm terrible at estimating sizes, John. But if I look at that thing, I'd say, what is that? Maybe 75 feet long and 50 feet wide. It could be more than that. Again, uh, uh, I'm no carpenter. But I look at it and say, it's not some small little building. It's not a giant yeah. cathedral. It's, it's a decent-sized synagogue. Another popular site here is the possible home of the Apostle Peter. Describe what remains of the home and why we think it might really have belonged to Peter. Well, if you dig down to the bottom layer, uh, you see uh, straight lines of stones that match the stones that are nearby uh, that tell us this is an, a housing complex. It was a place where someone lived. Uh, but there's one particular room underneath that that was enlarged at some point, probably in the second century. So within 100 years of the time of Jesus, they found some graffiti on the walls. And then by the time of Constantine and Constantine's mother, they built an octagonal church over that particular room. So it's really based on tradition. But the tradition goes back very early that says that was Peter's house. And there's something about that room uh, that could have been the place where Jesus stayed when he was here. The uh, disappointing thing for many uh, Christians is what has been built over that house. Describe what it is and uh, why it's so off-putting. Well, well, I call it either a crab or a spaceship. It reminds me of a crab that crawled out of the lake or a, a, a spaceship that landed over the house. Uh, it's a church. And now I've got to, I'll be kind. Uh, most churches are built right on the spot and, and wipe out the spot. Right. In this case, the church built actually since 1982, my first visit here, it wasn't there. But they built the church above ground so you can look below it and see the original ruins. It's intended as a chapel to commemorate uh, Peter's home and Jesus being there. But it is off-putting to me. It's not uh, my idea of a, of a, of a nice uh, religious worship site. Yeah, it looks sort of like a, a flying saucer. So we head now to Matthew 11, where in verse 23, it's woe to you. And he specifically uh, singles out Capernaum. Why did Jesus single out Capernaum as well as Chorazin and Bethsaida? Well, all three of those, it says in, in that passage, uh, were the spot where Jesus did most of his miracles. So we don't know what he did in Chorazin. Uh, we only have a hint of what he did in Bethsaida, but we have a, a huge litany of miracles done in Capernaum. And uh, what he says is in spite of all the things he did here, uh, the people refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge his claim to be the Messiah and Son of God. Uh, they liked all those goodies. They liked all the miracles, uh, but they didn't want to accept Jesus' claims on their life. And that's why Jesus, in fact, he's rather harsh. He says, uh, Sodom's going to get off easier in the future yeah. in the time of judgment than Capernaum because they had greater revelation that they rejected. Do you see one particular major turning point toward unbelief? Or was this just kind of a problem 
all along for the residents of Capernaum. Well, I, I think they liked the miracles, at least initially, uh, but they still refused to accept his claims. And in, in the end, it was the purpose for his signs. Though those miracles was to validate his claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Uh, he did a great deal of teaching here around Capernaum, so they, they understood what he was saying. And I think at some point they said, we hear you, we don't accept that, we're not going to accept who you are. And uh, that's when they turned against him. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Charlie Dyer, our host with you. John Geiger as well in Capernaum. Use your imagination to role play what it will really be like for residents of Capernaum at the Day of Judgment. What kinds of thoughts might they be processing? Well, you know, in my mind, it has to be shock and dismay are two of the, the words that come to mind. Uh, I mean, they, they had to remember exactly what he said and did. I think God's going to bring that all back to their memory. Mm. And they're going to also remember how they responded to him. Uh, we have a, a way of softening the past. You know, we, we put a veneer on it that makes it look a little nicer, but uh, that helps us minimize our responsibility and what happened. I think all that's going to be torn away. You know, God's going to open the books, and he's going to show them exactly what Jesus said, what they said, and what they did. And uh, at that point, they're going to be just horrified and, uh, and realize that they made an eternally wrong choice. Yeah. Well, let's put this conversation in a modern context. What about those listening to this broadcast who have heard the gospel before? They know what Jesus is asking them to do. They've come close, but they've never really responded, perhaps because of just a little little hint of unbelief. What should they do now? Well, if, if they take any consolation from the people of Capernaum, what Jesus did here, uh, they need to say, Lord, I do believe you're the Son of God. I believe you came. I believe you lived a perfect life, and you died for my sin, and you rose from the dead. That's a fact. But more than that, I want to place my trust in you. Uh, I've been putting it off. I've been making excuses. But I believe the claims you made, and I'm going to turn to you and trust you as my personal Savior right now from this point on. Uh, I turn from my sin to you. Uh, that's the eternal choice they have to make, which wasn't made by the people here in, in Capernaum. Uh, but it's going to determine their destiny for all eternity. There's a button at the top of our website, thelandandthebook.org, how to know Christ. Give that a click, and you'll find free resources right there to help you along those lines. Charlie, I hate to leave Capernaum. It's such a beautiful site. Oh, it is, John. Uh, and, of course, sitting here under this, this nice tree in a, in a sun-bathed day, uh, it, it brings back all the memories of what happened here. Uh, but, sadly, we do have to go. Well, in the weeks and months to come, we'll be back with other great conversations here in the land. Our thanks to Charlie Dyer, who returns back to the studio with a fresh set of Bible questions. That's next, right here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, it's that time of year again. The biblical fall feasts, the holy days are upon us. It's a great time of year to learn why these feasts are important to Jewish people, how they play a role in God's plans for the future, and why they matter for us as believers. Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help you learn more about the fall feasts. So they're offering a live Zoom teaching session where you can learn more and ask questions. Life and Messiah's knowledgeable field staff will walk you through the history and significance of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll also hear how you can use these holidays to share the gospel with your Jewish friends and neighbors. To sign up for this free teaching session, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. 
Be sure to sign up today and find out the fascinating connections between these feasts and our faith at lifeinmessiah.org. You cannot open the Bible for any length of time without coming to a question, one of your own, as you read God's holy word. And it's a good thing when we can take those questions and get some answers. That's the whole point of this next segment with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a guy who loves the word. Let's start with Stephen's question. He says, many of the prophets speak of Egypt's destruction and punishment for their evil ways and the way that they treated Israel. However, in Isaiah 19, the prophet speaks of Egypt's restoration and that they will one day worship the one true God. Do you believe this is referring to a future prophecy during the millennial kingdom? Well, I do take the last part of Isaiah 19 to refer to the restoration of Egypt during that millennial kingdom. Now, I see this in that six-fold repetition of the phrase in that section, in that day, uh, where Isaiah pictures the recognition by Egypt of God's person and power, and that will cause them to worship the Lord along with Israel and with the remnant of the Assyrians to the east. I see a parallel to it, by the way, in Zechariah chapter 14, where Zechariah announces that the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's going to be a change from enemies to worshipers during the Millennial Kingdom on behalf of Egypt and other nations. Linney takes us to Mark 14, verses 51 through 52, describing a scene between the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. These verses describe a young man who fled naked, leaving his garment in the hands of one of the mob who came to arrest Jesus. Can you help with the context or purpose of this passage, Charlie? Yeah, I love that passage. It's an example of a detail that gives us insight into the author. While we mainly say Mark is the author and he's reporting the life of Jesus as relayed to him by Peter, that particular detail shows us there's more to the story. I believe that the Last Supper was held in the upper room that belonged to John Mark's mother, we learned about that in Acts chapter 12, by the way. Likely John Mark was there that night. Perhaps he helped serve Jesus and the disciples. Whatever the case, without actually saying, hey, I was there at the betrayal, Mark provides this tiny detail to help us realize there were more than just 12 people at Gethsemane and that everyone did indeed flee. He provides a first-person account of the fear that must have gripped all the disciples. When the mob came, evidently they did try to round up more than just Jesus. The disciples ran for their lives, and Mark did as well, leaving his linen garment in the hands of a man who tried to grab him. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, answering questions that have come in via email. I'll share the address that you can use to connect your question with us in a minute. Uh, This listener wants to know, can you help me understand Ephesians 4, verse 8? It says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Who are the captives? Yeah, and that's, it is a difficult passage. I think Paul has in mind, by the way, death itself, uh, perhaps along with Satan and sin. You know, that's how a lot of the early church fathers saw it, and it seems to be a good suggestion. Uh, the point would be that when Jesus rose victorious from the grave and ascended to his rightful place in heaven, he openly triumphed over death and, and these other two enemies as well. That is, sin and Satan and death were the ones he defeated. Uh, those are the three enemies we find, by the way, throughout the New Testament. Paul goes on to then say that as he ascended triumphant, this king handed out gifts or rewards from the battle to his followers. And in the next few verses, Paul lists the different spiritual gifts given to the church. Uh, Those are the gifts that are given to us uh, when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Bob wants to know, what is the specific difference between an apostle and a disciple? Well, the primary distinction between the two is the role they play. A disciple, uh, really the word means a learner. It's someone who's studying under a teacher. 
And in that sense, it describes a follower seeking to learn from and become like his teacher. In contrast, an apostle, uh, the word means sent one. The name comes from a verb that had the idea of sending out or sending away. Uh, Jesus called together his disciples, chose 12, which he named apostles in, in Luke 6. And in Matthew's account of the event, in Matthew 10, Jesus summoned these 12 disciples, gave them authority, and sent them out after instructing them. These sent ones were then the apostles. Now, two other details about the words. First, the word disciple is used in the Gospels and the book of Acts, but it's never used in any of the New Testament epistles. And second, while the word apostle originally referred to those called and sent out by Jesus, the office of apostle in the church seemed to carry with it more authority. Apparently, one requirement for being an apostle was to have seen the risen Jesus and to have been personally sent out by him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul constantly stressed that he was called to be an apostle by Jesus according to God's will. So the apostles were the sent ones, and uh, it's an office in the early church. Sharon asks, 1 John 2 verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. God is appeased by Christ's sacrifice, and we're reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross. If our sins are paid for and forgiven, God has no reason to be angry with us. If I am understanding this correctly, what is David praying for in Psalm 6, verse 1, and 38, verse 1, and Moses in Psalm 90, verses 7 through 12? Yeah, okay, a detailed question. I'll give me a detailed answer here. Uh, the key is to distinguish between what God has done in reconciling us to him through Christ and the discipline he exercises on those who are his children. You know, even though our eternal destiny is secure when we place our trust in Christ, any decision to sin still displeases the Lord. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul discussed a serious sin being committed by an individual at Corinth. And Paul hands the individual over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but then says the man's spirit will still be saved in the day of the Lord. Putting that in today's language, uh, once we're in the family of God, we're always one of God's children. But there might still be times when God needs to take his children out to the woodshed for a time of discipline. Now, in terms of those specific passages, uh, in Psalm 6, I see the uh, verses there, not as, as David saying God was physically judging him, but using those words metaphorically to describe how he felt as his enemies attacked him. I believe that's why he calls on God to deliver him, because of God's unfailing love, he says in verse 4. And then in verses 8 and 9, he can rebuke his enemies because he knows God's heard and will answer his prayer. Uh, Psalm 38, it's a little bit different. David is experiencing physical issues along with external pressure, and he makes it clear it's because God's judging him for sin. In verse 18, he then confesses his sin to God. Now, we're not told the specific circumstances behind that pain, uh, but in this case, David did sense he was experiencing God's temporal judgment because of sin. And the third passage he gave, Psalm 90, well, that's still another example of God's temporal judgment for sin. Moses is describing the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And verses 7 to 9, they're a poetic way there of picturing what happened to this generation that died in the wilderness. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses that experience of Israel in the wilderness as an example for the church in Corinth to remind us how we're to respond to temptation. Now, one last point in all of this. We also need to guard against assuming that any pain, any problems are always God's judgment or discipline on our lives. We just need to remember the story of Job, and that's included in the Bible to remind us there can be other reasons for problems we experience other than personal sin. Stephen asks, do you have any favorite study Bibles? Which study Bibles would you recommend? And have you ever thought about creating your own study Bible? 
Well, my personal favorite study Bible is the NIV study Bible with the old 1984 edition of the NIV. Unfortunately, that's no longer sold, so it's rather hard to find one. I've had mine uh, recovered twice. There's a New American Standard Bible that does have those NIV notes, and I like that one as well. I'm still breaking one of those in. I also have, and I use, the Ryrie Study Bible published by Moody Publishers, and that's available in multiple translations. I also have the Swindoll Study Bible and the MacArthur Study Bible, and they're both good. Now, I appreciate that kind suggestion on doing my own study Bible. The problem with that is that it would share all my strengths and all my weaknesses, which uh, is the problem with a lot of single-person study Bibles. So I like those that are designed by a committee because uh, they tend to hash things over, and uh, you're more likely to get uh, good, solid notes that way. Todd asks, what about the issue of ghosts? I had a high school student ask me if ghosts exist. I referenced Saul and the medium at Endor, but neither are conclusive. What do you think? Well, I, I think ghosts do exist, but we need to explain something. The English word ghost comes from the German word geist, which means spirit. So the Holy Ghost in the King James Version was more accurately translated the Holy Spirit in modern translations. Uh, when many people think of ghosts, they're thinking of the immaterial spirits of people who died, but the Bible never has that as ghosts. Uh, spirits can be the Holy Spirit, but they can also be angelic beings, uh, good angels and bad angels. So there are ghosts in the sense of spirits out there, uh, but not in the sense that a lot of people think of them. Charlie's devotional is next right here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for sticking with us here on The Land of the Book. It's our fourth and final segment. Charlie, what are we about to do in this segment you call our devotional? Well, we're going to take a tour of Jerusalem today. Okay, a tour of Jerusalem and uh, insights along the way for all of us. Charlie says that quite succinctly, but boy, some powerful lessons to be gained. First, though, let's pause and enjoy this Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who's traveled to Israel. Hello, my name's Deborah, and this is my Holy Land experience. Um, Dr. Dyer has really shown us that the Jewish people are God's chosen people. And when we went into the Holocaust Museum, it was very, very moving. It brought me to tears. There was this picture of this Jewish man. And these German soldiers were all around him, and they were cutting pieces of his beard off as souvenirs. And it was just a horrible sight to see, and it really moved. And um, it was an experience I'll never forget. All right, we're going to Zechariah 14, verse 16, and our focus, Sukkot and the Second Coming. Charlie, I'm looking forward to seeing how you put this all together. (laughs) Thanks, John. Well, let's start with a short tour of modern Jerusalem. As we walk down the street, every apartment with a deck or balcony seems to have a temporary booth filling up all the available space. Turning the corner, we come to a street filled with single-family homes. Here, even larger booths extend across back patios. Whether large or small, these structures are covered with palm leaves or other leafy branches. For the next week, The Jews in these apartments and homes will spend at least some time each day in their sukkah or booth. Leviticus 23 verses 40 to 43 explain why. You are to take choice fruits from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. 
celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. The festival of Sukkot, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, looks back to remember Israel's time in the wilderness. But in addition to looking back, this seven-day festival also symbolized the end of the harvest season. As God said in Leviticus 23:39, So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The spring festival started at the beginning of the barley harvest, while Sukkot caps the end of the fall harvest. Much like the original purpose for our Thanksgiving celebration, Israel was rejoicing during Sukkot that all is safely gathered in ere the winter storms begin. And yet, even though this seven-day festival points back to the time of the Exodus, as well as marking the end of the harvest season, God arranged for it to conclude the cycle of fall festivals, all of which point prophetically to the second coming of Christ. But how specifically does the festival of Sukkot fit into God's future plans for Israel and for the world? Well, it all goes back originally to Abraham. When God first called him in Genesis 12, God told him that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's call of Abraham and ultimately of Israel involved them becoming the mediators of God's blessing to the entire world. In Isaiah 42, 6, one of the servant songs that parallel the work of the Messiah, God announced that Israel was to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Sadly, Israel failed to be that light. In fact, they ended up in spiritual darkness, needing to be rescued themselves. Jesus became the ultimate servant to fulfill God's plan for a mediator. In Isaiah 49, one of the roles of the servant was to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. In addition, God announced the other role for his servant. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The future deliverance of Israel and the Gentiles rests on the work of God's heavenly servant, the Messiah. And the ultimate servant song, Isaiah 53, explains how the servant will accomplish this. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know those words were fulfilled when Jesus hung on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He is the ultimate hope for Jew and Gentile alike. He became the light to restore both Israel and the nations. Israel's hope for the future rests on the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Paul said in Romans 11, 28 and 29, when talking about Israel, as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Israel has a future because God made a promise, and Jesus' death on the cross made the fulfillment of that promise possible. And in that sense, the festival of Sukkot is a reminder that God will regather the Jewish people and fulfill all the promises he made to them. This festival was one of the three times when God summoned all Israelite men to appear before him. And it's the only one in the fall. The other two were Passover and Pentecost. Prophetically, this looks forward to the return of all Israel to the land under the rule of their Messiah. But this festival isn't only for Israel. In fact, it's the one festival that makes it very clear prophetically that it is also for the Gentiles. 
the prophet Zechariah connects the festival of Sukkot to the coming reign of the Messiah. After picturing the coming of the Messiah, he says in chapter 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And he follows that with a startling announcement in verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it literally says the nations, the Goim, the Gentiles, will come to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. But why? Why connect Sukkot with the Gentiles? Again, I go back to God's original purpose for Israel. They were to be the light to the nations, the ones to bring the light of God's revelation to the Gentiles. But when they failed, God sent his son to bring back the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet his role was far broader. He also came to be the light to the Gentiles. As Jesus said in John 10:16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Zechariah 14 is a reminder that God's program of redemption extends to all the earth. It's not an either or option. God will fulfill all his promises to Israel. He's a God who keeps his word. But he will also have the ultimate son of Israel be the light to the nations to accomplish the goal Israel nationally failed to do. He's the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah 2 actually describes the fulfillment that the festival of Sukkot anticipates. That time when Israel is back in the land, the Messiah is on the throne, and all the nations are experiencing God's blessing as a result. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And then Isaiah turns to Israel and says, Come, O house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, it's time to head home. But as we do, what lessons can we take with us from observing all the booths on the balconies and back porches here in Jerusalem? Well, how about this? From the festivals in the Mosaic Law to the predictions of Israel's prophets to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, the ultimate purpose of God in human history is the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Jesus himself said, we're to pray, your kingdom come. And then he followed it with, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's kingdom will come when the Messiah returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Someday the world will experience the peace described in Isaiah 2. Someday Jews and Gentiles alike will gather side by side in Jerusalem to worship God's Son and Israel's Messiah. It's not a question of if, but when. All three fall festivals point to a time, perhaps in the very near future, when that program will unfold. The book of Revelation ends with Jesus making a promise. Yes, I'm coming soon. And our response should mirror that of the Apostle John. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Boy, what a what a day that's going to be. I'm, I'm just excited listening to you, Charlie. Thank you for that great devotional. And if you are not ready for that day, if you're not excited because, well, maybe you're downright terrorized by this thought of Jesus coming and you're not being ready, you can get ready. A friend can help you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, begin a new life with Him. If you'll talk to a volunteer now at 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Well, Charlie, I can look at the clock and tell that our time is gone, but I want to say thank you for another great broadcast. Thank you to every listener who's 
hung with us. I'm John Geiger on behalf of the team. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.